0: Welcome back to 18 to 24. This week, we will take a look at how elections are done in the United States, fraud, mail-in voting, and how the pandemic could have long-term effects on the way we do elections. With special guest...
1: Hi, I'm Professor Eric Heron, and I am the Eberly Family Professor of Political Science at West Virginia University. I've been here for about six years, and before that I was at the University of Kansas for about 13 years. And I have studied elections and political parties all over the world for a couple of decades. So issues like election fraud, election administration have been an interest to me for for many years.
0: My name is Abby Smith, and this is 18 to 24, the election podcast by and for young people. We are going to start off this week with a little word association. When I say US elections, What is the first word that comes to mind? I'll give you a minute. Okay, well, maybe not a whole minute, but I'll bet one of the things you thought of was fraud. In February of 2020, a Gallup poll found that nearly three in five Americans don't have confidence in the honesty of our elections, and that was before the pandemic. We really need to be confident in our elections in order for them to work, because if people don't believe that the voting will be fair and honest people won't vote. That is why I decided to get in contact with Dr. Heron. So maybe he could put things into perspective for us. I first asked him point blank, how secure is US election technology? So before we talk about technology
1: specifically, let's talk briefly about election security more generally. So election security encompasses a number of features. First, uh, making sure that candidates and parties and their supporters comply with the rules on finance and on campaigning and so on. This includes making sure that people or organizations, foreign or domestic, don't attempt to improperly influence the outcomes. Uh, second, uh, making sure that only eligible voters get ballots. Uh, but that also means making sure that all eligible voters who come to the polls are not denied ballots. So making sure the right people get ballots and also making sure that people who should get ballots get ballots. Uh, The third point, uh, making sure that ballots are securely stored and transported to election officials, and this is usually county clerks. So ballots could be physical objects, it could be on paper, they could be electronic data stored on flash drives or in other media. So we wanna make sure that they are always kept safe throughout the process. And the fourth point is making sure that ballots are accurately counted. And this includes confirming that voter preferences are recorded correctly. It can include post-election audits, managing postal ballots, electronic votes, and provisional ballots, and so on. So where does technology come into the process? Social media, electronic voter lists, and voting equipment in much of the country all involve different kinds of technology, some connected online, some
0: not. Since we know a little bit more about election technology, I asked him how susceptible our system is to fraud, whether from foreign actors or inside the country. So one
1: of the strengths of U.S. election systems for security purposes sometimes turns out to be one of its weaknesses in other aspects of election administration. And that that really is the decentralized nature of American elections. In countries where I have been an election observer, and I've done 15 or so formal missions in various countries to monitor their elections and provide reports on what happens on election day. In all of those countries where I've been, you have really national ballots. There's a ballot that is at the national level, and sometimes at a district level, the same for everybody. In the United States, our ballots vary at the state level, at the county level, and sometimes at the level of municipalities or below the county level. That level of decentralization makes it incredibly difficult to coordinate a massive campaign of counterfeiting and fraud. So the idea that, for example, some foreign power would print a bunch of ballots and turn them in, it is so unlikely, so unlikely as to be kind of absurd. And I say that because every ballot has security measures on it. Every system differs, again, from sometimes city to city or county to county the level of information and coordination you would have to have to flood the system with ballots that are not going to be identified immediately as fraudulent is is mind-bogglingly high. It's just not within the capabilities of any actor to do. And so we have some problems because of this decentralized system. Uh, Most students at WVU weren't uh, alive or were very young when the 2000 election occurred. And one of the problems in the 2000 election in the United States was a poorly designed ballot that caused voters to incorrectly record their, their votes. That kind of threat is uh, much greater in the U.S. because of the decentralized system than, than counterfeiting.
0: For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, back in the presidential election of 2000, George H.W. Bush was running against then-Vice President Al Gore. As the votes rolled in on election night, it became clear that Florida's Electoral College delegates would determine the next occupant of the Oval Office. There was one problem, though. The margin in Florida was only 537 votes in Bush's favor. NPR writes it best, stating, The margin was so small that all the anomalies and oddities that mar the margins of any major election ballooned into major national controversies. There were confusing ballots marked for third-party candidate Patrick Buchanan in heavily Democratic precincts, suggesting that they were cast by voters who had thought they were voting for gore. There were punch card ballots where the voters attempt to make their choice had only succeeded in detaching a portion of the perforated paper or a hanging chad or merely denting rather than removing the punch out.
1: That election caused a substantial reform effort to move forward, including a sizable investment of money from the national level to upgrade voting systems. So those hanging chads you're talking about I'm sure none of the students at WVU have probably ever voted on those punch card systems because they don't really exist anymore in the US. There are many different ways that you can record a vote, but the US has really settled on two for the most part. One is either electronic or electronic assisted voting. So those are like an ATM, you know, a touchscreen system. It may have a paper ballot associated with it, it may not. And then optical scan ballots, which are like the test student take, you know, where you either um, fill in bubbles or you connect arrows. And those paper ballots are then counted electronically. Most Americans vote through those kinds of systems now, but that's largely because of the 2000 election and the the debacle of the 2000 election. That's the the downside of the decentralized system, that we don't have coordination on how we vote. We don't have a large scale investment in improving elections uh, until there's a problem. So there are two sides to this decentralization question. One is the positive, which is it's really hard to have a massive coordinated fraud campaign. And then the opposite side, we can have problems emerge and really not have the resources to catch them before they cause problems or to correct them.
0: Since we were on the topic of how people vote, I decided it would be a perfect time to move on to talk about voting by mail. Because of the pandemic, many people do not feel safe going to the polls, and there has been a massive push to ensure that every person in the United States has access to a mail-in ballot if they want one. This, however, is not an opinion shared by everyone, most notably the president. I decided first to ask Dr. Heron if there was any real, sizable difference between absentee voting, which has existed in many states for decades, and voting by mail.
1: In in terms of how voters complete and return their ballots, the answer is no. There is no meaningful difference between voting by mail or absentee voting. The distinction that you hear in the media, and you hear lots of different terms, so we'll just use those two for right now, uh, voting by mail and absentee voting, to mean voting by mail, we'll treat that as places where the state, provides postal ballots to all registered voters. So Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Utah, and Hawaii have universal postal voting. With absentee voting, there are some restrictions on who is eligible to vote by mail. and. As you mentioned, many states have modified their restrictions or have eased their restrictions so that during the pandemic, more people can vote by mail than would have been able to vote if the pandemic hadn't occurred. So in West Virginia, you can go right now to the Secretary of State's website. You can request uh, a ballot or a request that your local county clerk send you a ballot. And you can indicate that concerns about the coronavirus are the reason that you would prefer not to vote in person. And that's going to be accepted as a reason uh, to receive an absentee ballot. So the difference really is who, who gets these ballots. And all of these rules vary state to state. Now, one really important point to emphasize is that this issue has not been particularly partisan until very recently. I mean, Utah is one of the most conservative states in the country. Hawaii is one of the most liberal states in the country. They both have vote by mail or postal voting as a universal process. So it has been politicized, but it is not particularly political. Now, there are vulnerabilities and we can talk about those. Every method of voting has vulnerabilities. But in a pandemic, if you're thinking about the trade off between the public health concerns and the need to make sure people can vote, uh, it seems like a pretty elegant solution to a very serious problem.
0: It's true. Voting by mail does have some weaknesses. I asked Dr. Heron to explain if those vulnerabilities are more prevalent with mail in ballots versus in person voting. So before we
1: talk specifically about about moving toward uh, postal voting or mail-in voting, it's really important to remember, so we often assume, I think, that the way that we do something is the way that everyone else does it and the way that it's always been. So we often assume that the way we vote is the way everybody else votes and the way that it's always been. Except in the U.S. and all over the world, voting has changed a lot until the late 1800s, for example, in the US, um, Americans took their ballot with them to the polls. It was like printed in the newspaper or by a political party, and each party had its own ticket. So if you've ever heard of the term split ticket, it comes from that process of you bringing the party ticket with you and turning it in. And this led to all sorts of problems. People would get involved in vote buying schemes. There would sometimes be violence at the polling place to try and prevent people from voting with a ticket that, you know, partisans of one party would recognize what the other party's ballot looked like and would try and stop people from voting. And technology was introduced, large mechanical voting machines were introduced to solve this problem and something called the Australian ballot, which was essentially printed ballot. Even earlier in American history, Americans voted by voice. You didn't actually turn in a paper ballot. You said who you voted for. And we still, in some respects, have this system in place. If you recall, we, a few months ago, had the Iowa caucuses. Well, a caucus is a voting method where you show up and physically locate yourself in a part of a room or a building that's associated with your candidate. Basically, you are publicly announcing your vote. I participated in a caucus when I lived in Kansas, and we were in a barn, and we had to go to different parts of the barn depending on the candidate we supported. Large scale, we don't use caucus voting anymore, but it still exists in some states. Note that we do things differently, and changing to postal voting is potentially one of those changes we're going to see. And it can be done reasonably effectively, but it has vulnerabilities. So first, members of a household. So if you're voting in your home, if there is an individual in your house, a parent or a sibling or someone who could influence your vote, it is hard to defend yourself against that because there's no polling official making sure that you're filling out your ballot secret. So household members could influence a voter to cast a ballot differently than they want to. When it comes to postal voting or voting by mail, the postal voting and and vote by mail relies on the U.S. Postal Service uh, largely to deliver ballots. And so problems with mail delivery, and there have been many recent reports about problems with the US Postal Service could undermine postal voting. Now that is not directly related to the process of voting, but it's related to the process of delivering and transporting the ballot from the voter to the place where it's going to get counted. You could also have errors on ballots that are cast at home that wouldn't occur if you voted in a polling place. So, for example, in Mon County, uh, we use electronic systems that print your ballot that you then insert into a ballot box. And there's a touch screen, and you cast your vote using the touch screen, it then prints your decisions, you turn that in. You cannot accidentally vote for, say, two presidential candidates and invalidate your vote that way. You could do that on a ballot that you receive for postal voting at home. So if you accidentally uh, filled in the blank for two of the candidates in any race, no one's going to catch you and stop you from doing that. No system will catch you and stop you from doing that. What will happen is that vote will not be counted when it's turned in. So that's a vulnerability of that system. It can increase the likelihood of error. Now there's also potential problems depending on when people vote. So the US Postal Service delivery problems have created an environment where people are being encouraged to vote early, you know, get your ballot and turn it in early. But the situation could change after your vote is mailed. Something could happen in the campaign that would change the way that you would like to vote. But if you have already filed your vote, you're locked in, at least in most cases in the US.
0: And since we already touched on fraud, I thought I would ask if voting by mail is inherently more susceptible to fraud. There's
1: been this talk about ballot harvesting. This is one of the concerns out there about postal voting. And this describes a situation where someone gathers large numbers of mail-in ballots and then turns them in. States vary in their regulations about who can return an absentee ballot. So some states allow a person other than the voter to return it. Uh, and, and in West Virginia, no one can hand deliver more than two ballots. So the idea of ballot harvesting uh, really isn't feasible in a place like West Virginia. But in addition, the problem is not so much ballots being collected, but the concern that they might be altered. And there was a situation in Pendleton County that, uh, in, the, in the primaries, where a postal carrier altered the applications, but was caught. There was also a situation in the 2018 midterms in North Carolina, where an activist who favored the Republican candidate had a plan to collect incomplete absentee ballots, forge the results, and turn them in. But he was caught, and the election was run again. So I think this points to, again, one of these important issues, that there are vulnerabilities, but if we are talking about large-scale fraud, it is extraordinarily difficult to do this and not be caught. And we see efforts to commit fraud, um, but the, the people who are the perpetrators are, are, are caught. When I talk about fraud, there's, there's a point that I like to make. It, it's really important for everyone to understand that in any large election, there will be fraud. The main issue is whether or not it's widespread and widespread enough to affect the results and it's really important not to make the mistake of finding an example or a single example of something like fraud and then thinking that it's happening on a large scale everywhere. Uh, there, there might be exceptions in the U.S. case, but fraud is usually isolated and small scaled. So when we start to get results this November, it is highly likely that election night, we won't know who won. We won't have enough information. This is not abnormal. This is actually normal. In many countries, it takes time to count the election's results and to get the results right. And that's what's most important. And we're going to hear stories And they will circulate from all sorts of actors both foreign and domestic about nefarious things going on as the votes are being counted and there will be claims of fraud and the reality is that large scale fraud is something that is almost impossible to hide and if there is not clear evidence presented it's not really happening i and i can tell you from experience i have seen fraud committed in elections personally, not in the US, in other countries. And if I can see it happening and can document it, then it's hard to hide. And that is, you know, everyone needs to have a degree of patience and vigilance when it comes to the information they consume during this election season in general, but especially after the election reporting starts, because we don't want to have a situation where divisions in our country become greater, while at the same time, election administrators are just trying to do the right thing and count the votes accurately. There will be fraud, but people should not panic. They should recognize that if it's large scale, there will be evidence. And if it's not, they need to be careful about how they interpret um, claims of, of fraud.
0: For my final question, I asked Dr. Herron if when looking toward the future, is there anything from this pandemic that he believes will have a long lasting effects on the way we do elections in the United States?
1: Well, you know, I've been thinking about the potential for long term effects of the pandemic lately. And, you know, we were just talking about the 2000 election and the memories of people about the 2000 election or in the case of students, the fact that they weren't born or were very young when it happened. And I think that it's in a similar way, you know, students at WVU, other than the non-traditional or graduate students, weren't alive on 9-11. And the post nine eleven adjustments to daily life, like increased security at airports and government buildings and so on, they just seem normal. Uh, I I can remember the pre 9 11 times and know how things have changed and remember how things used to be. And I suspect that the pandemic is likely to bring similar changes. Some of these are expected or we might be able to anticipate and some we probably won't be able to anticipate. So I wouldn't be surprised if you're thinking just about elections, Um, in a very small way, some of the cleaning protocols that we adopted for elections stay in place. So I work as a poll clerk in Mon County. So I work the elections on election day and I was in um, the primaries uh, this year. We received all sorts of cleaning supplies that we had never received before to make sure that we were disinfecting anything that voters might come in contact with. And I suspect that these kinds of protocols will become normal if they, you know, they might not be as frequently applied, but they'll become normal. I won't be surprised if we, in the future, have essentially like, you know, you get in the weather report in some large cities that it's going to be a smog, bad pollution day, and that you should be careful about outside activities. I won't be surprised if we have, you know, mask days in the future when mask use is recommended or required. And this isn't just because of the coronavirus, it could be because of the flu or other issues. And if it coincides with elections, we may have to provide more masks to voters. I also expect more states to expand early voting and postal voting, uh, not just in response to the pandemic, but probably informed by the experiences during this election cycle, both the primary and the general election that's coming up.
0: Before we left our Zoom call, Dr. Heron had a very important last message for everyone listening.
1: And everyone should go vote. If students want to volunteer or to work the polls, uh, they can contact the Mon County clerk or the county clerk where they live. And I know that there's great interest in diversifying the pool of poll workers. Traditionally, older people work the polls. And in the coronavirus time, they're more vulnerable. So if students are interested and willing, they should contact their county clerk. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's uh, it's really valuable and it's uh, really inspiring to uh, work the polls.
0: He's right. It is so important that you go vote. In most places, it is very easy to register, and in a lot of states, you can do it online. There are only 49 days until Election Day. And if you're planning to vote by mail, you need to register ASAP. At vote.org, you can check your voter registration and get resources to help you register if you aren't already. No matter your home state, your political party, or your age, we all deserve a say in the way government functions. I'll also include links to the Monongalia County Clerk's website and the Secretary of State's website so you can find more information on becoming a poll worker this November. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of 18 to 24. And special thanks to my guest, Dr. Eric Herron. Next week, we will be taking a look at how the pandemic is shaping the way we see inequality and what effect that might have on the election this fall with special guest Dr. Bill Franco of the Political Science Department at West Virginia University. To listen to this podcast, visit thedaonline.com or subscribe to DA Deep Dives wherever you listen to podcasts.